And you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 1. And um, if you're not uh, familiar with what, well, actually, before I even tell you where Luke is, if you don't have a Bible, there are some scattered about the auditorium here in the seats, uh, under, uh, underneath the seats. Uh, there's some extra ones, there's white Bibles, and you can either borrow one of those or you can keep it if you don't have a Bible. Okay, so Luke is in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, and uh, actually New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And we're in chapter 1 of Luke, and we're going to start at verse 57 and read on down through the end of the chapter. And Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would guide Steve as he preaches your word. Help him to rightfully and faithfully divide the word of truth, God, and not only guide the preaching, but guide our listening as well, God, that we may receive the word with gladness and understand it thanks to the illumination of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Now, in our family, we like to play games. We have several, lots of board games we like. And we also like to play games in the car. And our kids come up with some some of their own games sometimes. But we like to play I Spy or The Guessing Game. And different games when we're in the car to help make the time go by. But there's one game, maybe y'all have played it in your cars while y'all been driving as well that I'm not sure my kids actually like that much. It's called the the quiet game. (laughs) Have any other families in here ever played the quiet game? Now why we put the word game on the end of it, I'm not quite so sure, but oftentimes we we play the quiet game uh, in our car. Sometimes when we leave this building here, we play the quiet game all the way home. Of course, the quiet game is less of a game than it is really a a, a disciplinary method to get the kids just to be quiet for a little while. Okay, but we like to call it a game, you know, quit quit bickering, quit, all right, quiet game, non-negotiable, quiet game until we get home, all right? We're going to play this game, kids. It's going to be fun, and you're going to sit there until we get home, all right? So sometimes, just sometimes, the quiet game happens in our car. Well, Zechariah... Um, if you remember him, he is the father, he's going about to be the father of John the Baptist, as we read about, and his wife was, was Elizabeth, and I'll give you a little bit of background for him here in a second, but Zechariah is in the middle of a very long, quiet game. 
a very long, quiet game. Now, if you remember who Zechariah is, he was a priest, okay? Um, a priest, and he had been chosen for a very special task to go into the temple and to, to burn the incense, which was, which was a very high honor bestowed to him. He and his wife, the Bible says, were righteous and faithful to God. But they were also old and well beyond childbearing years, and God had not given them a child. But then, if you remember back to the beginning of this chapter in Luke, an angel appears to Zechariah while he's burning the incense in the temple. It was the angel Gabriel, and the angel announced that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a child in their old age. And not only that, but this child was very special. He would be the promised prophet who was to be the forerunner to the Messiah. He was the one that was going to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, who is, of course, Jesus. Now this was huge, because God had been silent for 400 years. No prophecies, no word from God, no prophets, no miracles. And all of a sudden, God begins to speak again, and Gabriel's there, and he gives this message to Zechariah. But the problem is, Zechariah didn't believe. And so Gabriel struck him dumb. Basically said, okay, quiet game. Luke 1.18 we read, And Zechariah said to the angel, this is after this had been revealed to him, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God had disciplined Zechariah for his unbelief. You see, God does that to his children, whom he loves, according to Hebrews 12. Read Hebrews 12, you'll see that God disciplines his children. He treats us as sons. For Zechariah, God's divine discipline had run its course. And now, finally, in the verses we read today, Zechariah is able to speak again. Actually, he sings. He sings a song, a glorious blessing to the Lord called the Benedictus, traditionally. Just as Mary's song that we looked at last week is called the Magnificat. This one's called the Benedictus. Those are simply titles based upon the Latin words that are in these songs. So this Benedictus, this blessing, it's the third of five songs that Luke has uh, recorded in the first two chapters of Luke. So the first words after Zechariah's disciplinary quiet game that he had to go through were words of blessing and praise. So just real quickly before we get into the text further this morning, Christian, let's think about that. If you're a Christian here and you're a child of God, you will be disciplined. It's not a matter of fact of if, but when. You will be, if you have not already, you, you will be disciplined. Don't disregard God's discipline. Instead, see it as a good thing. What should our words be when we come out of a period of discipline? They should be words of blessing and praise to God. Not words of bitterness, frustration, or even regret. Zechariah doesn't come out of this period of silence and say, Man, I really blew it. Idiot. Can't believe I did that. No, he comes out, he's experienced the blessings of, he's experienced the discipline of the Lord, and he comes out with words of praise and blessing unto the Lord. We're going to examine Zechariah's song today. What does Zechariah's song teach us about Jesus? From this song, how can we see and savor Jesus more? That's our focus as we go through this. There's so much meat in Zechariah's song. We could, we, could spend, we could do a million sermons on just this song alone, just like Mary's song last week. But we're going to focus on what, what do we see about Jesus? How can we see and savor Jesus more in this text today? This is our series we're going through, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We want to... See him more fully, savor him, and sat, be more satisfied in him, and thus be able to experience him and rejoice in him more and more and, and grow in our knowledge of him as well. So let's set the stage for the song here with the first few verses of this passage that we read, starting in verse 57. 
Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. She had been shown great mercy, hadn't she? Remember, despite the fact that they were godly and righteous people, they had not been given a child. And now God gives them a child in their old age. What a merciful gift God gives them. Now in light of this mercy, how do her neighbors and relatives react? They react with rejoicing. That's how it should work. Contemplating the mercy and grace of God should always lead to expressions of joy. That's the part of what our focus, part of the reason we're in this series here is, to, is to, to see the Lord kindle up joy in the hearts of Harbins here. And when we contemplate the mercy and grace of God, it should result in joy, expressions of joy. A mind fixed on the mercies of God should translate to affections overflowing with the joy of the Lord. Now, according to the Mosaic Law, which required them to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they do that in verse 59. And then it says, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now, who are the they in this passage? I'm assuming it's the relatives and the neighbors. This has become a community event. I think all parents can probably relate to this in some sort of way. You know, you go and you announce to the family, hey, we're about to have a baby. Maybe that first one, and it's so exciting. And not long after that, you begin to get people's opinion on the names. What are you going to call him? Oh, really? Yeah. How about a family name? Okay. Maybe that didn't happen to you guys. It happened to us, you know. How about, how about Richard or Gregory or, no, we really like Noah. Okay, well, that's just, that's just not in our family line, but, but that's okay. You know, you call him what you want to call him. Oh, Come on, Mom. You know, that's the experience here, okay? They, they, they've got this child, and the they, the neighbors and relatives are saying, hey, the family name, Zechariah. And, of course, Elizabeth stands her ground and says, no, she's going to be obedient to what the angel has said. And she says, his name shall be John. So they decide to make signs to Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah, what do you want us to call the baby here, you know, baby? Okay, now... Why are they making signs to Zechariah? The angel struck him dumb. So I either assume that they didn't know that he could hear or he actually couldn't hear. Maybe the angel struck him deaf and dumb. We don't know. The text doesn't say for sure. But we do know the Greek word used for when he was, when he was not able to speak anymore was oftentimes used also to refer to people who were deaf. So perhaps he's deaf and dumb here. He can't, he, he's, he's having a serious quiet game. Not only can he not speak, he can't hear. And so they're making signs to him, and he asks for a writing tablet in verse 63 and says, His name is John. The name John means God is gracious. That name is quite appropriate, as Zechariah's song will demonstrate. Zechariah, by writing down, His name is John, period, demonstrates the exact opposite of what he had demonstrated in verse 18 of Luke chapter 1. He now believes the word of God. And obeys the will of God. And instead of rebelling in unbelief, he submits in faith. Instead of rebelling in unbelief, he submits in faith. And therefore, in verse 64, it says, And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke blessing. He spoke blessing God. So he begins to speak now. And fear comes upon all the neighbors. They see this happening. All of a sudden, this man who had been deaf and dumb is speaking. They know that this couple shouldn't even be having kids, how old they are. And so they ask, what will this child be? And they, they rightfully conclude that the hand of the Lord must be upon this child. So now we have the words of blessing that Zechariah speaks. If these are not the very first words out of his mouth, then they're some of the very first words out of his mouth. After nine months of silence to meditate upon who his son was going to be, after nine months of silence to think about what his son was going to do. After nine months of silence to quietly consider what had happened to Mary. After nine months of silence to silently contemplate what God was about to do. To privately examine the scriptures. To prayerfully dwell upon the fact that the Messiah was coming. That God was going to be with his people. After these nine months, now 
this act of faith has loosened his mouth and opened his mouth and filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy. So this is nine months of contemplation built up, just exploding out of Zechariah's mouth here. So I want us to think about Zechariah's prophetic song of blessing here. And in your notes, in your notes, you will see I have a long sentence that I want us to complete about Jesus as we journey through the text. It's really straightforward. It's just straight from the text, but just sort of summarizing it in one very long sentence. Uh, I want us to, to fill these blanks out as we consider Zechariah's song. So let's read the first part of the song, and then I'll give you the first part of the sentence in your notes. Verse 68. Here's Zechariah's first words after his mouth has been opened. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So from this, I want us to see a few things. So we're going to start off your notes. There's the title today, a song about the horn of salvation. Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us. And then we'll finish the rest of the sentence here in a minute. But for right now, Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and to rescue us. And I see that in verse 69 here, as we, can, as we at verse 68 and verse 69. First, I want you to focus on verse 68 where it says he visited us. He came to live among us. He has come to be with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Lord Yahweh of Israel had come to live and be with and visit his people. You'll remember that the prophet Isaiah refers to Jesus, the Messiah, as Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in our presence. God miraculously stepping down into the created order and condescending to become human. The creator becoming the created. This is a magnificent miracle. The incarnation to me, in my mind, is the most mind-blowing and magnificent miracle in all of Scripture. I don't know, our salvation is right up there with it. It's mind-blowing to me that God would save a sinner like myself and all of us in this room. But the incarnation is absolutely mysterious and mind-blowing. I think it's funny that we quibble over other mysteries that have a whole lot more information in them in the Scriptures. Other mind-blowing aspects of, of who God is and how God works. But we have a lot of information about Him in the Scriptures and we still argue over those. But we just sort of blow off the incarnation. But the incarnation absolutely is astounding. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2.6 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. This is astounding that God condescended to become flesh, that the Son became human. Now, I heard it illustrated this one one way recently. I can't remember who said this, so I don't know who to attribute it to. But he said, the incarnation, to try to get our mind around it a little bit, and of course, this is an, a, a totally inadequate um, illustration when, when you consider how huge the incarnation is, but Imagine fitting all the waters of all the oceans in the world into this little eight-ounce cup. Take all the water from all the oceans in the world and, and they fit them into this little eight-ounce cup. If I were to say God did that or God was about to do that, you'd be astounded. You'd be blown away. How can all the, the waters of all the oceans in all the world fit into this little eight-ounce cup? The incarnation is even a more magnificent and glorious miracle than that infinitely greater than that little thing I just illustrated right there. Infinitely greater than that. That God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, came and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. So don't misread the word visit here. It's not a drop-in visit. Like you'd say, hey, I'm going to go over and visit 
Carrie. I'm going to stop by Carrie's house and say hi to Carrie. That's not what's happening here, okay? This is more than just a drop-by, stop-by visit. It's an identification with his children. He became flesh, according to Romans 8, 3. It says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. To identify with his people, it's, a, it's an incredibly miraculous, gloriously mysterious visit. But it was also a rescue mission. So I talk here about Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us. That's the incarnation. And rescue us. Okay, This is a rescue mission as well. Zechariah says that he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed means that the ransom price has been paid for the freedom of his people. This visitation was for a reason. The visitation was so that we could not that he would not only be like us in human flesh, but that he, by the tearing of his own flesh and by his death, would ransom us from sin and death. Hebrews 2.17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's the visitation. That's the incarnation. But it goes on. So that... Here's the reason for the visitation. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's the purpose of the visit. Is to redeem a people for himself. To pay the ransom price. So the cute Christmas baby in the manger was so that or for the purpose of or in order to Make possible the bloody gore of the cross. The cradle was only the first step to the cross. He ransoms and redeems by shedding his own blood to pay the price to free us from slavery and transfer us into his kingdom. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the very precious blood of Christ. So let us keep going. I've talked about how he came to live among us and rescue us. But he's also our mighty deliverer. And I see that in verse 69. It says, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now real quick here, by mentioning the house of his servant David, this means that Zechariah is not talking about his own son John. Remember, Zechariah is a priest, meaning he has to come from the house of Levi, he has to be a Levite. David was from the tribe of Judah. So when he says that this child he's speaking of here, that he's prophesying about in this song, is from the house of David, he's not referring to his own son John. He's referring to the baby in Mary's womb, the Messiah, Jesus, who, according to what he says here, is a horn of salvation who has been raised up for us. What is this? What is this horn of salvation? Well... It's an illustration to help us see the power and the unstoppable might of God. Jesus is a mighty deliverer. Yes, he's meek and lowly and humble, but that does not mean he isn't also mighty and a conquering king. He is. And that's what a horn is here. So the idea here is that we come under his authority and his protection and we trust in his might and his power to deliver us from our enemies. You know, I don't, I don't shoot helpless animals. And so I asked Carrie to get me some horns this morning. Sorry, Carrie, I had to get that in there. Um, so he, he brought me a set of his, the horns that, that some poor animal once owned. Um, I'm, I'm joking, Carrie. I, I, I'm totally good with hunting. I just don't do it. And um, anyway, so these horns here... This just kind of helps us to get a picture here this morning of the kids especially. What, what's, what's Zechariah talking about? First of all, he's quoting the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a second. But imagine some animal coming at you and you don't have a gun or a bow. And an animal coming at you with these things swinging. You don't want to be in the way. This thing's going to do some damage. This thing's going to knock you over. This thing's going to hurt you. And, and, and there's plenty of animals that come with them that are much bigger than this. So, Carrie, I don't know, have you not caught anything bigger? No? All right, so we'll have to be satisfied with this. But they come much, much bigger than this. I'm just, Carrie, I can joke with Carrie because Carrie's a friend and, and you know, he's, he's, he can take it, right? Right, thank you, Carrie. Okay, if I'm in trouble later, I'll find out. But anyway, so this, the picture I want us to have is of this, this mighty, powerful God who is our defender and our protector. That's what this, this, 
this means, but really this isn't an even an adequate picture because um, the, the reference here to the Old Testament um, picture of horn of salvation, they would have been referring to an ox, a big, mean old ox with these big old horns. And so I'm going to show you a picture of probably what would have been in the mind of the people as they heard this. There is a big old ox right there. Now, Carrie, catch that thing. Okay, mount that on your wall. Okay, it may bring down the drywall, all right? That's a big old set of horns there. Now, that's sort of the picture here, this big ox with these massive horns protecting his people. Notice what's at the foot of the, of the little, I found that picture, and I said, I got to put that one up because you got this little bitty crane or whatever little bird that is just sitting at the foot of this thing here. And that, that, that big old ox is looking around like, don't bother my friend here. I got him under my wings. I got him under my protection. Don't you come near my crane, buddy, here, or I'm going to knock you upside the head. And so that's sort of the picture here from the Old Testament. Let me read a couple of passages. 2 Samuel 22, 3. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. That's the picture here. So when he says horn of salvation, he's pulling them from these texts. Here's another one, Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So we're the little white crane here sitting at the foot of our Savior who is our rock, our refuge, our deliverer, and he has this horns. He is our horn of salvation. And that phrase is used in other places as well. You can go to Psalm 92, 12, Psalm 132, verse 17, and Micah 4, 3. And it always refers to the mighty power of God, specifically his power to protect his children and to deliver them from their enemies. Zechariah has such faith in God and trust in God's promises that he even speaks about these things, if you'll notice, in the past tense. Jesus has not been born yet. Yet he speaks here in the past tense. He has redeemed. He has visited. That's because Zechariah knew that God's promises never fail. All of these things, according to verse 70, if you look at verse 70 of Zechariah's song, were spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Therefore, Zechariah knows if God spoke it, it's as good as done. So he's willing to speak in the past tense here because he knows when God says something, it is done. Matter of fact, didn't he learn that the hard way? Nine months ago, he didn't, wasn't speaking like that. Nine months ago, he was speaking in unbelief. But now he says, no, it's as good as done. God has said it by his prophets of his old. So I'm going to speak in the past tense here because I know God has done these things. Now the rest of the song, and this is important to see. The rest of the song breaks down into two main parts. Two stanzas, if you will. Two verses. The first part is verses 71 through 75, which talk about God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. And the second part is verses 76 through 79, which talk about God's plan to use John to announce that these promises were reaching their fulfillment. So I want us to return to our sentence here, and I'll bring it back up. Let's return to our sentence here. And, and I'm going to complete this, this sentence by looking at these two stanzas together. Okay? Jesus is our mighty deliverer who came to live among us, rescue us. Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and to rescue us in order to... And I'm going to go ahead and give you all the rest of the outline as I read the first stanza. And then we're going to revisit each part. Okay? trying to make this as less complicated as I can, but I want us to see how stanza one connects with stanza two here in this song. So, Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us in order to, okay, here's the next three parts, to save us from our enemies, show us God's promised mercy, and thus secure us as his joyful servants. Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us in order to save us from our enemies, show us God's promised mercy, and thus secure us as his joyful servants. Save us from our enemies, verse 71. It says right there that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then we read in verse 32 about 
verse 72 and 73 about God promised, God's promised mercy. Verse 72. To show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And finally, to secure us as his joyful servants, we see in verse 74 and 75 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So in the first stanza alone, we can fill out our sentence here that Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us in order to save us from our enemies, show us God's promised mercy, and secure us as his joyful servants. Now I want to revisit each one of those statements by tying them to the second stanza of Zechariah's song. The second stanza actually helps us get a fuller grasp of and a deeper understanding of these first verses that I've already read. All good Jews of that day would have loved to hear what Zechariah, Zechariah is saying. But they would have interpreted what he was saying in these first verses, in this first stanza, as merely the physical, geopolitical deliverance of God. That's how they would have understood this. Which is not the higher meaning of what's being said here. That's why so many Jews missed their Messiah. They were expecting a deliverer king who would deliver them from their enemies, mainly the Romans who were occupying their land. That's the type of deliverance they wanted. They were waiting for an earthly kingdom to be set up right then and there where God was going to wipe out the enemies and rule the earth and they were just going to be right there with him as his people. But these words Zechariah spoke from the Holy Spirit have a much higher meaning. They speak of a greater warfare, of a greater enemy, of a greater victory, of a greater mercy, of an infinitely, infinitely greater kingdom in which his people, a much more diverse people than anyone could ever have imagined, would serve God in a much greater and glorious and satisfying way. The earthly slash physical kingdom okay, and defeat of physical, political enemies will come. But the greater deliverance, the greater victory has already been won. The victory over sin, victory over Satan, and the victory over our own rebellious selves, our own rebellion. Now how do we know this is not, that Zechariah is not talking about the physical, political deliverance of Israel? We know that because of stanza two. Okay? So we, we read, we know that Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us in order to save us from our enemies. And verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies. Now how do we know that the immediate deliverance from physical enemies was not what Zechariah is singing about? Because you go to verse 76. Verse 76 says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And here it is, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation. Okay, he's talked about being saved in verse 71. Now he talks in verse 77. Knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is the type of salvation that Zechariah is singing about. The knowledge of salvation in or through, through what? Through the forgiveness of their sins. That's true salvation. That's salvation at a much higher level. You see, George Washington delivered people from political, physical enemies. But could do nothing to deliver people from sin. You can find men who can deliver you from enemies. But a greater salvation is the deliverance from sin. This word knowledge here. Very interesting word. It actually means a deeply experiential knowledge. It's not just referring to cognitive knowledge. Okay? It's not referring to book knowledge. The type of knowledge of salvation here is an experiential knowledge of having your sins forgiven. So kind of, kind of illustrate the difference. Let's say someone comes to me and says, you know what? I know a lot about being a parent. Let's just say Jeremy and Melissa and, and, and Missy come to me. Jeremy and Missy say, we know everything you need to know about being a parent. We have all of these books here. We've bought every book, every Christian book on parenting you could own. We even have, have books about so that you can know uh, what to expect when you're expecting. And we have all of this and all this and this. And James Dobson wrote all these books. And we've got a stack. We've read it all. We know what it means to be a parent. And then Carrie comes to me and says, I know what it means to be a parent. 
One has experiential knowledge, a lot of it, and one has book knowledge, a lot of it. I'm going to go with the experiential knowledge. That's the type of knowledge here of salvation that Zechariah is singing about. It's the knowledge of knowing and experiencing what it's like to have your sins washed away. And to stand secure in the knowledge that these, these sins have been nailed to the cross. And I'm no longer guilty of these sins. Instead, my guilt was poured out upon someone else who stood in my place as a substitute. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of whom Zechariah is singing. That's a very different knowledge. The way we know God as our Savior is to have our sins forgiven through Christ. To destroy sin. Destroy death once, and all, once for all. That's why he came. You don't know Jesus, friends, if your sins have not been washed away. There are a lot of crazy ideas in our minds about how we deal with sin. But only Jesus can deal with sins once for all. You see, everyone's trying to deal with their sins in some sort of way. Some people will give to charity. I'm going to give a boatload of money to charity. I, I've shared this with people before. Once our credit card got stolen our credit card number, and the person racked up $3,000. I think 1,000 of it was airplane tickets, but 2,000 of it was, was a donation to a charity. And I'm wondering, what was this guy thinking? He says, okay, I'm going to pay for my credit card stealing by now donating to a charity. I'm sure he made himself feel a whole lot better. And so we have ways of doing that. You can go, go, go find a booth and talk to some man about your sins and, and then repeat some rote prayer over and over. And if that makes you feel good about your sins, then, well, great. I'm glad you've psychologically dealt with that. But those sins still remain on you unless you have come to Jesus Christ and confessed him alone, repented before him and confessed him alone, put all your faith in what he did on the cross to deal with your sin. If you haven't done that, you don't know Jesus as Savior. You don't know Yeshua, the God who saves. You don't know him. You may know about him, but you don't know him. It's a difference. This was John's ministry. He went, out, he went around proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And this was Jesus' ministry too. The very same words, first words out of Jesus' mouth were the same first words out of John the Baptist's mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, receive forgiveness of sins. But Jesus didn't just proclaim it like John would. He made it happen. Forgiveness from and thus victory over our enemy's sin only happened because Jesus took the full wrath-filled judgment of God upon his own shoulders for our sin. He himself said that he was going to pour out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself, as he's explaining what the communion is all about, he said he was going to pour out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 5.31 says God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43 Everyone who believes in him, everyone who puts their faith and their hope and their trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the great victory over our enemies that Zechariah is singing about. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to his kingdom of, the, of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were in the enemy camp. He went, ransomed us out of the enemy camp and forgave our sins. That's how we were rescued. That's the rescue. That's the salvation that Zechariah is singing about. Our sins are forgiven only because of his great mercy. So the next thing I want us to see is that God shows us his promised mercy. Okay, if we look back at the first stanza, it said, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And then in stanza 2, it says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then verse 78 because of the tender mercy of our God. The reason God has saved sinners is because of His mercy, His grace. We do not deserve salvation. As I said, we were in the enemy camp. We do not deserve 
salvation. We deserve hell and death and wrath and eternal separation from God. But God, being rich in mercy, provides salvation, not because of us, but because of his tender mercy. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy being poured out upon us to make our hearts new, regenerated, and draw us into his kingdom. It's God's work, not ours. He initiates salvation, not us. God is a proactive God, not a reactive God. I'll say that as clear as I can. God is a proactive God, not a reactive God. Dead men don't ask for mercy. For his great mercy to be most magnified, he revives spiritually dead people and pours out undeserved mercy upon them. That's exactly what Titus 3, 5 says. He revives dead people and pours out undeserved mercy upon them. Romans, Paul in Romans writes this. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, this is Paul's conclusion from that verse of the Old Testament. This is Paul's exposition of that verse from Exodus. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Your salvation isn't about your human will. By the way, your will is dead until God regenerates it. It's not about your human will or your exertion. You are in the enemy camp. You are a dead man walking. You are in the zombie enemy camp. And he saved you, made you alive, and pulled you out. Why? Paul has no other explanation than to say, well, because of his great mercy. So that his mercy could be on full display. God's mercy is why we're saved. God is the initiator of our salvation. Ephesians 2 also makes this so clear. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty damning few verses right there. That was our state. That's who we were. There is nothing good in those verses about us. Nothing. Not one single word about, oh, but do you know what? You were good. Not one word. He, he points out how horrible we were, and then he gets to verse 4. But God. See, here's the difference. You're dead, but God. God did something, according to verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. We were dead. Dead bodies lay there, not doing anything. We were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Those verses are the banner over the book of Ephesians. I know we already preached Ephesians. Sometimes I just want to keep on preaching it over and over and over again because those verses are so magnificent. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us. Those are not my words. Those are the Apostle Peter's words who walked with Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who caused us? He caused us. He caused us. We are saved from our enemies because and only because of his great mercy. God shows us his promised mercy. This is what he had promised all throughout the Old Testament. That he would send a deliverer, a mighty deliverer, a horn of salvation. Let's continue with our sentence here. Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us in order to save us from our enemies, show us God's promised mercy, and thus secure us as his joyful servants. Verse one, the first stanza here. Look back at verse 74. Being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
And then you jump back down to the second stanza in verse 78. Okay? It says, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. There's that word again, visit us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And here's the part I want to focus on. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The connection here, I believe, is with this last phrase. Guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what it means to be the people of God. We are people who now have feet that are guided. Prior to our salvation, we had feet that wandered. We had feet that went astray. We had feet that joined the enemy camp. We had feet that went, walked on the way of wickedness. We had feet that were walking on the way of destruction. And he now has saved us. And now he ha we have feet that are being guided into the way of peace. God visits us. He gives us light, salvation, and mercy, delivering us from the darkness of sin and the shadow of death that we might become a people of God, recreated, born again, whose feet no longer walk in the ways of the wicked, but whose feet now desire to walk in the way of the Lord. That's who his servants are, and that's a joyful thing. How can we serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness? Only when our sins have been dealt with. So when Zechariah in the first part of the song sings about serving him with holiness and righteousness and without fear, Zechariah knew you couldn't do that. He had just been in the presence of the angel. How on earth was he going to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness unless he had an experience of salvation, which meant his sins had to be wiped away. He had to have those, that coal that happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 placed upon his lips and have those sins washed away. That had to happen before he could actually serve God. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those who have received mercy and salvation are a chosen, special people of God. And we now serve him in righteousness and holiness, not because of anything we've done or any morality that we have acquired, but because his spirit now resides within us, as Jeremiah had predicted. And thus his spirit enables us to keep the new covenant. And our old sinful dead hearts, according to what Ezekiel had predicted, have been removed and we've been given new hearts of flesh in order to, according to Ezekiel's words as well as Peter's, Ezekiel uses the exact same words, to cause us to walk in his statutes. To cause us to obey him. God is the cause not only of our salvation, he's also the cause of our sanctification. And that should cause us to fall on our knees and repent of our sin and our man-centeredness. Because we think this whole universe is about us. We think salvation is about us. Guess what? Not a created thing is about you, and salvation is not about you. Ultimately, it's about God. Do we receive great benefits from all the glorious things God has created? And has he not provided wonderful things for us? Yes, but ultimately, his glory is at stake. And his mercy through unconditionally saving sinners being demonstrated, that is how his glory is going to be made manifest. At the end, when all these sinners are standing before God that have been purified and cleaned and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and we're standing around the throne on that day, guess who's going to get all the credit? It isn't us. The reason we're on our faces laying down our crowns and everything else that Revelation says is because his mercy has been magnified. He is the one that gets all the glory. Praise be to God that that's what his word teaches. Will we still sin? Yes. But sin is now odious to us. It's powerless over us. And the one who's truly been saved and had his sins forgiven will hate his sin more and more as the Holy Spirit continues to work and convict and help us, enable us to kill sin. We will be on a progressive track towards more Christ-likeness into a holy, redeemed state of being God's children. But until that point where we become who we already are, we are on a journey that involves a battle, a warfare against our sin. 
But during that warfare, don't, don't, don't be tempted to, to look at, well, I'm not, I'm not who I need to be yet. And during that warfare, at some point begin to trust in yourself. You still got to be like that little bitty crane. Lord, I can't stop this habitual sin. I need a horn of salvation. Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't treat my children in a way that brings you the glory and honor that it should. And so I need my horn of salvation. I need your mercy and your grace to be poured out upon me and for you to cause me, cause me to walk in your ways. So we are becoming who we already are. It's this progressive track. I believe that's why in this psalm there's, there's past, present, and future tenses in one song. It's not that Zechariah is confused. I think this song just demonstrates that, yes, God's, for God's people, their salvation is done, but they are being transformed and that they will one day be glorified in bodies that can never sin again. For our enemy has been defeated because we have a horn of salvation. Jesus, our mighty deliverer, came to live among us and rescue us by saving us from our enemies, showing us God's promised mercy and thus securing us as his joyful servants and that's what john the baptist his whole life was going to be about announcing that right there that's john the baptist's job description from this point forward it says in verse 80 that the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to israel i imagine john the baptist lived much of his life perhaps even as a child as an orphan his parents were very old but even from the womb he was filled with the holy spirit he knew who his horn of salvation was and so he goes out into the wilderness, begins to get ready to announce this to the world, to make way because the Messiah was coming. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning as we close in a word of prayer and enter into a time of response. If you're here this morning and you've put your hope, you've put your faith, you've put your trust in some sort of religious system, praying certain prayers, doing certain things in order to be right with God, to make yourself right with God, but you haven't thrown yourself at the feet of the king and begged for his mercy and asked him to reign over your life, then this morning I'd love to talk to you about the gospel because that's what it's all about. It's about putting our hope in him who took the wrath of God in our place on the cross and gave us his righteousness so that we could be children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you move in this place now as we have this time of response. Lord, if there be anyone that needs to talk to me or Deemer or any other uh, man in this church or uh, just another member of this church about, about this gospel, this glorious gospel, then, then I pray, Lord, that you would move that upon their hearts and that maybe even during the song could come talk to me up here in the front row or talk to one of us afterwards. Lord, I know there's those of us in here that need to repent of trying to work out our own salvation in such a way that we think we can defeat sin in our life instead of putting our hope in him who's at work within us. So God, as we fight sin, and each one of us in here are fighting sin, Lord, may we, may, we, may we remember that picture of the ox. We have a warrior fighting on our behalf. Why on earth will we try to flutter off and do it on our own? So God, I pray that you'd convict us of our sin, cause us to repent, cause us to seek you, Lord, this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that you are ruler over the universe. We can't explain exactly how your sovereignty works and all those details. And, but God, we know what's in the word and we do not want to be Zechariah. We do not want to walk away and say, well, God, how's that work? Explain it to me, God, and have hearts of unbelief and experience seasons of discipline. So, God, we pray, Lord, you help us believe, help our unbelief move in this place. Lord, may we respond with our offerings and our tithes, with our prayer requests. May you be honored and magnified. As we close in this time of response and singing, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.